with that, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. This morning, I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version, which you heard me read the psalm, uh, read the psalm from. It is very similar to the New American Standard, which I currently usually read, but it, it, it uses the Hebrew translation, of the literal name of the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And uh, so if you haven't heard that before, you, you haven't come to a church that's a cult, <laughs> this isn't some strange thing. Um, if you were to look at any conservative evangelical Christians uh, commentary or so forth, it is universally, uh, unmistakably agreed among biblical scholars that that is, in fact, the old covenant name of God, Yahweh. Um, some of you of the King James may have it as Jehovah, very, very similar, the consonants there of Hebrew. So I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of Yahweh. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, saying, Yahweh was very wrathful against your fathers, Therefore say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets called out, saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my slaves, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they returned and said, as Yahweh of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has done with us. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of Yahweh who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth is sitting still and quiet. And the angel of Yahweh answered and said, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? Yahweh answered the angel who was speaking with me with good words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, call out, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very wrathful with the nations who are at ease, for I was only a little wrathful, but they helped increase the calamity. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, 
I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, call out, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, My cities will again overflow with good, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Amen. Would you pray with me? O God of Israel, we pause briefly once again to ask that you would give us understanding. Uh, Your servant Zechariah was writing some 500 years before the birth of our Lord Christ. So separated by 2,500 years or so and by culture, some of these words are strange to us. We ask at the outset of the study of this portion of your Holy Scriptures that you would bless us with the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit and that you would give us understanding not only with our heads but with our hearts and may it be reflected in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by briefly giving you a little bit of the background, the timing and the setting. We've learned twice that Zechariah, this prophet, is the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. He is in the priestly line. He is a, of a priestly family, so he is both a priest and, in this case, a prophet. The time we know because of the dating and because we're able uh, biblical scholars to line up uh, these Old Testament dates with uh, historical events and so forth. We know that this is around 520 BC, 520 years before the birth of Christ. There has been by this time uh, one of the initial early small returns uh, of the people of Judah to the land. Uh, Israel in the north, the ten tribes, had been taken over and scattered 200 years, 200 years previously by the Assyrians. And now it's been nearly 70 years since the Babylonians overran Judah, the kingdom in the south, and destroyed Jerusalem utterly and hauled off into exile many of the people. And now by 520 B.C., a small remnant has returned. And they initially started the work of rebuilding the temple, but they were faced with much discouragement and opposition. Remember, even though they returned from exile in Babylon, they were very few in number. And when they arrived back in the land, imagine if if you return to a war-torn land and your property and it had been abandoned for nearly 70 years. Houses are rubble and fields are grown in. And as for Jerusalem, it is just one heap of rubble. And it is a great work. And they set about the work, but they were opposed from within and from enemies from without. And by this time, work on the early, on the first, on rather the The temple, the rebuilding of the temple, the first temple after the destruction of Jerusalem, 
it has ground to a halt. The prophet Haggai, or Haggai, as you might call him, and Zechariah lived and ministered at the same time. And in the book of Haggai, he was sent by God to stir the people up to continue to rebuild the temple. But even though it was encouraging they had returned from exile, even though it was encouraging that they were back in the land, it was discouraging in so many ways. They were a shell of a people compared to what they used to be. There was no king on the throne in Jerusalem. There was no temple yet built. They were ruled over. They didn't even have their own nation. It's not in Incidental that in verse 1 and verse 7 of Zechariah 1, it was the year of Darius. The year of Darius, a pagan Persian king. We're so used in First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles in the history of Israel and Judah, learning it was the year of such and such a king of Israel, such and such a king of Judah. It is no mistake that the Holy Scriptures here put before us this was the year not of say Josiah or Hezekiah or Solomon or David this was the year of Darius in other words they are ruled over by a pagan foreign power they are discouraging days they are dark days it seems as though all God's promises about a future for Israel and a glorious future for Jerusalem and Zion the city of David God's love and his covenants towards his people, it seems that all those promises of God are much like the rubble of Jerusalem, lying around on every side, unrecognizable, with little shape or reality. These are dark days, much like the night on which This vision came to Zechariah. It was a vision that came in the night. And I don't know why exactly it was night. We know that God also gave a vision to Daniel in the night. But maybe that night mirrored the darkness of the days. That ravine in which the angel of the Lord was standing. It was somewhat like the hidden dark place that Israel found it self in at this time so these were these were incredibly discouraging days it's really hard for us to fathom imagine god forbid that modern israel was completely overrun by isis or hamas or hezbollah and the cities were ravaged the people were slaughtered and maybe in jerusalem there was a few thousand jews who held out It's somewhat what it was like in the days of Zechariah. A measure of peace had been arraigned. There was a modicum of, of hope. But by and large, they were very discouraging, dark days for the people of Israel and Judah. And we must insist that these words were originally written and intended for Israel and Judah. Yes, this morning, as most of us are Gentiles, and the church is not Israel, we read these words, and these words are for us. We learn in the New Testament that the former things were written for our instruction. And I just have to say, as an aside, people get really weird here (laughs) when they get to uh, studying God's promises to Israel and Judah. People get really weird. 
I don't know if God was so specific in his promises to Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. I mean, I'm a Gentile. I mean, if you're saying God has promises to them, what does that have to do with me? You don't say that when you read the book of Timothy. You don't say that when you read the book of Philemon. You don't do that anywhere else in the Bible. Everywhere else in the Bible, you understand, I'm reading a letter that was originally written to a specific church. You don't say, oh, well, that letter was written to Corinth. Uh, That's got nothing to do with us. Actually, that's probably how we want to think. (laughs) Uh, That was written to Corinth. We don't have to worry about that. But, you know, you don't do that. You don't say, oh, Paul was writing to the Ephesians. I feel really left out because, you know, he didn't write a letter to Reformation Bible Church in Chichester, New Hampshire in 2023. You don't do that. You understand a basic principle of Bible interpretation that the word of God given by the Spirit was given to a particular people in a particular time. And yes, in some cases, there are particular promises that will be realized but there are permanent and transferable principles and promises that I participate as a Gentile believer. We are now, according to 1 Peter 2, verse 10, as Gentile believers, we who were once not a people are now the people of God. So Israel and Judah, I'm not Jewish, not even spiritually speaking, I don't even, I mean, I don't even know what nation, I mean, I got English and Irish and German in me and all kinds of, you know, when Zechariah was, was uh, prophesying, I mean, my, my forefathers were probably running around headhunters in, in northern Europe and, I don't know, you know, eating each other or something like that. That's, that's what my lineage is. I'm not Jewish. But by God's grace and God's time, someone, God sent someone to tell me about Jesus. I believed in him, and by believing in Christ and by being regenerated by his spirit, along with all believers, we are brought into the people of God. There's one people of God. There is one head. But because there is one people of God does not mean that God erases every single distinction. In fact, one of the basic plot lines of the Bible From the very beginning, as those of you in the Wednesday night Bible class learned in your study of Genesis, is that God, from the very beginning, has a plan for the nations, plural, nations. And he called this one pagan guy named Abram out of Ur, and he said, I'm going to choose you and your physical line through your physical line and ultimately one ultimate descendant, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And in the end of the Bible, we don't find that everyone is now Israel and Judah. That's not what you find when you read Revelation, is it? And Israel was finally constituted of Jews and Gentiles, and there's Israel and Judah. No, that's not what you find. You find an emphasis in Revelation, the end of the Bible, that God saves for himself men and women from every tribe, every language, every nation, so that there is a glorious unity and diversity, glorious beauty to the people of God. And so because God has called us to faith in Christ, because we are his church, does not mean that he is done with Israel and Judah. And I am emphasizing this point because it is most popular in our day among evangelicals to basically uh, insist that we now, the church, are spiritual Israel. God will not fulfill any of the physical promises to Israel and Judah. 
uh, regarding the land and so forth. We just need to move on because God's moved on. That is increasingly the dominant conviction in the present day. And as a church, we deny that. We do not think it's a matter of small indifference because God has spoken so clearly, so repeatedly of his promises to Israel. Just look quickly. Here the text says, for example, in verse uh, 12, that the angel of Jerusalem says, Yahweh of hosts will have, he prays, how long we have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. Some of those cities of Judah are under attack, uh, were under attack yesterday. Uh, he says, verse 17, Zion, and he will choose Jerusalem. These are historically identifiable references. We have no need to spiritualize them. They would have been understood exactly by Zechariah and his contemporaries as a physical places regarding a specific people. And if we spiritualize or allegorize these places away, we do so to the great displeasure of God, I believe, and really to the peril of making hash of our Bibles. Because if Jerusalem doesn't mean Jerusalem, when to everyone in Zechariah's day, Jerusalem meant Jerusalem, And if Zion doesn't mean Zion, and Judah doesn't mean Judah, and Israel doesn't mean Israel, then when you get to the New Testament, what audacity do we have to trust that me will still mean me? (laughs) In other words, God's promises to me. If God changes his promises based on who he's talking to, we we have a problem. God doesn't change, though, and his word is perfect and true and clear. So this is the background. Zechariah is living and ministering about 520 years uh, before the birth of Christ. God is speaking to a discouraged people of Judah. Israel as a nation, by the way, in the north uh, has already, as I said, been uh, really unidentifiable for about 200 years, which will really be audacious because God insists that he's not done with them either. And even by Zechariah's day, they're dispersed. They're unidentifiable. So the days are discouraging. They are small days. They are little days. The people are threatened and then surrounded by nations who desire to crush them, much like today. There's one other, uh, by, then we'll move quickly. Uh, this is introductory. There's one other key observation I want you to make in these opening verses of this prophecy. There's this mysterious figure in verses 7 through 17. It's not Zechariah, and it's not even the angel who was speaking with Zechariah. You notice that there was an angel who was speaking to Zechariah, but then there is another angel. He is mysterious, he is glorious. He is called the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. Not an angel, the angel. And this is not the first time we've been introduced to this mysterious and fearful, glorious character. 
Don't turn there, but in Exodus chapter 23, you can write this down. God speaks of this particular angel. This angel means messenger. The angel of the Lord, God speaks of him in Exodus 23, 20, this way. Behold, I am sending an angel before you, he says to Moses and the people of Israel, as they're going out of Egypt, to bring you along the way, to to keep you, to bring you to the place I've prepared. Listen to what God says about this particular angel. God says to Moses and the people, keep watch of yourself before him, this angel. Listen to his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. Verse 22, but if you truly listen to his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. God says of this particular angel, this angel of the Lord, that what he says is what God says and God's name, meaning God's character, God's reputation, all that God is, all that Yahweh is, is in this angel. This is why this is one instance of many in the Old Testament where we believe this is none other than the Son of God, before he was born of Mary, before he was made incarnate. This is a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't have time to explore other this whole theology, but it's very clear in the New Testament that Jesus was active in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt. It's very clear that he was the one that in fact was used of God to destroy Egypt. And later in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, we learn that at night, as the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, a violent people, the angel of Yahweh, we learn, went out and struck 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. You say, Jesus would do something like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this angel of the Lord is our Lord, Jesus Christ. He is unique. He's not like any other angel. And I say that because Jesus is, in fact, ultimately the theme of Zechariah. He is, like all scripture, he is, he is the ultimate point. So with all of that introduction, let's look together and learn from the vision that God gave to Zechariah. First, and we'll come back to the first six verses at the close. But in verses 7 through 11, see Christ, our warrior king, longing to defend his people. See Christ. I say see because God is giving to Zechariah a vision. And we may have questions about the vision and we wonder about the color of the horses and such. But one of the principles interpreting your Bible is, is don't make complicated what is clear. There's clear teaching about who this angel of the Lord is. And he is clearly the main figure along with Yahweh, God. He is one with God. He is Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh. 
But this is Christ, and he is our warrior king. Where, where, do, I, where do I get this? Well, let's look back at the text. In verse 8, Zechariah is, is seized at night, and a man riding on a red horse the red horse you see here is a various horses, a white horse, a sorrel horse, which is sorrels may be spotted. The colors are indicating um, various aspects that would have been more familiar to the original audience. Red, likely speaking of wrath and of war. Some of us immediately, like, here's something I can see someone doing. Well, if Jesus is on the red horse, how come in Revelation 19 we see him on a white horse and, and people see, see, there's a discrepancy. That's, that's just so dumb, to be blunt. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you could, could um, reconcile that. One could be, for example, he comes on a white horse, but by the time Jesus does to his enemies what Daniel and Zechariah and Isaiah and Revelation says that Jesus will do to his enemies, is it not possible that the white horse is covered with the blood of his enemies? Because in Isaiah, we find exactly that image, that Jesus' robes are covered with blood. So I'm just giving you, I'm not teaching that. I'm just saying that's a kind of example. People say, oh, there's a discrepancy in the Bible. Zechariah says a red horse. Revelation says a white horse. Ooh, what are we going to do about this? Claim your ignorance and just say, okay, in the vision he's on a red horse, in Revelation he's on a white horse, God's going to figure it out. And in the end of it, I'll be worshiping Christ. So he's on a red horse. In other words, this is not a war, this is not a horse of peace. This is not the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on, a symbol of peace. No, this is a war horse, a red horse. This one that's riding on the horse, this majestic figure. He is among the myrtle trees. The myrtle trees were a common tree in Israel. It was one of the the trees that they used the branches to make the booths for the feast of booths. It was to them, I suppose, I mean, you you take away in New Hampshire, you take away the white pines or the or the sugar maples, and we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves, right? I mean, you, the, the ash trees, that's been sad that they're gone. There's still a few around, but the elm trees, that's sad. But I mean, you take away the maple trees, and you take away the white pines from New Hampshire, uh, it's just not going to be the same. Myrtle trees were, were I mean, I, maybe that's a silly illustration, but were somewhat like that. They were just identified with the people of Israel, common to them, and and this man riding on the red horse verse 8 standing now he's riding now he's standing you get the idea he's, he's holding the horse and he's just standing there majestically mysteriously gloriously fearfully among the myrtle trees in other words he's he's with his people he's standing among the myrtle trees in the ravine with red sorrel and white horses behind him It'll become more clear. These horses have various riders on them. And Zechariah has a question, Lord, what are these? And there's an angel who's speaking with him, says, I'll show you. And then, by God's grace, giving Zechariah the vision, Zechariah, in verse 10, hears the man standing among the myrtle trees. This, again, is Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, he speaks, and he says, these, in other words, these horses and these 
various angels. These are those who have... These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. This is very instructive here. There's so much instruction. But one of the truths we want to assert here is that God is not passive in the unfolding of history. That's real temptation for us right now. We are so full of ourselves. We moderns, we're so full of our technology and our history. And we are so impressed with what we can do. We are even we who profess faith in Christ, we are tempted to think that God is far off somewhere, twiddling his thumbs and busy. God is active. His angels are patrolling the earth, even as I speak. He is not indifferent. He is taking note of what the world is doing, of what evil and wicked rulers are doing. And these angels then come back to the angel of Yahweh, verse 11, who was standing among the myrtle trees. Again, this idea of Christ identifying with his people. He's the king of Israel and Judah. He's the warrior king. And he's with his people. He's sending out patrols to get a report. And they come back with a report. We have patrolled the earth, said the angels who are patrolling, and behold, all the earth is sitting still and quiet. Now we initially think, oh, that sounds very nice. No, it's, it's not nice because of this. Israel, even at the time of Zechariah's prophecy, is crushed. They're nothing. They're, they're trampled upon. They're surviving barely as a little remnant. They are surrounded by people who would be happy to absolutely exterminate them just like it is today. Fascinating that this tiny little nation the size of Vermont is the most hated nation in the United Nations. And if it were not, think of it, if it were not for the United States and a few Western European nations, although they're really, you know, they have a history of kind of going back and forth, but maybe especially England, Great Britain, and the United States. You take United States and Great Britain out of the way, and likely this morning you no longer have Israel. That's not an overstatement. And, and you don't even have to believe the Bible to believe that's true. God is not indifferent to the plight of his people. And Jesus himself is taking notice and he's standing at the ready. That's the imagery here. Standing at the ready. Christ, our warrior king, standing and longing to defend his people because the fact that it's still and quiet means that the evil nations, they seem to be fine. And that's exactly what it's like right now, isn't it? It seems like those nations that are evil and wicked, they have the upper hand. Righteousness, does righteousness have the upper hand in our world right now? In our own nation. Never mind other nations. No. There's, in other words, this stillness and quiet is the stillness and quiet of the apparent present triumph of evil rulers and peoples. That's how it seemed in this, his day. After all, it was the year of Darius. It wasn't the year of our Lord. It was the year of Darius. And even though right now on the calendar, your calendar says it is the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know as well as I do that this world is in wholesale rebellion against God. And again, except for God's mercy and grace, 
for a few nations, and even our own nation increasingly waffling on defense of Israel, except for God's grace, you would have a slaughter of Israel right now that would make the Holocaust look small by comparison. So Christ is longing to defend his people, and he is a warrior king. I've said this frequently recently, but many of us need to adjust our Christology, our understanding of Christ, and factor in this reality that our king, who is our savior and loving shepherd, is also the most fearsome warrior this world has ever or will ever see. He's our warrior king. Secondly, Verse 12, see Christ, our priestly king, our priestly king, praying for his people, Israel. Verse 12, the angel of Yahweh, that is this pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, answered and said, now he's talking not to Zechariah, he's talking to Yahweh, he's talking, Christ is talking to his father. O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you've been indignant these 70 years? He's not accusing the father of being unreasonable. After all, God has been compassionate with and long-suffering with Israel and Judah for hundreds of years. God waited to judge Israel in the north and waited to judge Judah in the south. But for when judgment came, God did withhold compassion, and it was brutal, and it seemed as though God had withheld his compassion. So Christ is not accusing the Father here of somehow being lacking compassion as to his character, but there's Christ here interceding for his people. Do you see this? Interceding for his people. He's not only our warrior king, he's our priestly king. And what a joy it is to think of what we learn in the New Testament in Romans 8, that Christ is interceding for us, even Christ's spirit interceding for us. You ought to be thankful this morning that you have Christ praying for you, not because the Father somehow has to be, you know, placated, and he's like, well, you know, I really don't like this this gal or this guy, you know, I... They kind of bug me, son. You, you would be maligning the character of the father, for after all, it is the father who in love sent the son. So be careful. But the wonder and the mystery of the Trinity, that God the Father, sovereign with the Son and the Spirit and unfolding the plan of history, but the Son in submission to the Father and acting in a role as a mediator, Not Mary, Jesus, acting as a mediator, interceding with the Father on the behalf of his people. One of the reasons you want to pray for Israel, by the way, I'm serious, like this week you want to pray for Israel. And if that seems weird to you, you just need to get over it. Uh, um, Because, let me finish my sentence, one of the reasons you want to pray for Israel is because your Savior prays for Israel. Jesus prays for Israel. He intercedes for them. And you want your prayers to line up with the prayers of Jesus, right? Make sense? I I can't help but just illustrate why this morning also we're talking about Israel. I've 
accused is too strong a word, but there's a sense maybe among some, again, because there's a turning away from what the Bible has to say about Israel in our day. You know, uh, maybe churches are pa- like ours or churches like pastors like me that talk on these things. We're, we're said to really focus on these things. We focus too much on Israel. It does just, I'm kind of chuckling because we don't have time, but if I could have every one of you just open up your Bible in front of you and put your finger, uh, which really is not a good plan for reading your Bible. But, but if we were just to do that right now, every single one of you were just to open your Bible and put your finger down. I wonder what the percentage would be of where your fingers would be landing on a passage that has to do with God's dealing with Israel and Judah. So what's my defense? Uh, the Bible talks about it a lot. I rest my case there. See Christ, our warrior king, longing to defend his people. See Christ, our priestly king, praying for his people. Thirdly and finally this morning, hear Christ, our prophet king. Now, why am I using this? Because the angel of the Lord, of Yahweh, Yahweh speaks, but then he commissions the angel, the angel of the Lord, to convey the beautiful, comforting message at the close of this passage. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of God. He is the ultimate messenger of God. And he speaks words of hope and comfort to his people. Hear Christ, our prophet king, speaking words of comfort to his people Israel. Hear Christ, our prophet king, speaking words of comfort to his people Israel. And what are those words of comfort? Namely, God says in verse uh, 13, first of all, he says, uh, he was noticed that the words are good words, Zechariah says, comforting words. God's not done with Israel because of their rebellion. He still loves them. He still has words of hope and comfort. And he says in verse 14, he has not forgotten Israel, but he is still jealous for her. I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Notice that God, that Yahweh says he is not indifferent, but that he's angry, verse 15, with the nations that oppress Israel. God used Assyria, God used Babylon to execute God's judgment upon Israel and Judah, but both Assyria and Babylon and later Rome and in the future day, the nations that will surround Israel, they will go far beyond God's intent and they will enjoy abusing the people of God. So God says, I am very wrathful with the nations who are at ease. Remember that stillness and quiet? In other words, they're smug and they think they're all set. Israel's nothing. God says, I was only a little wrathful, wrathful, but they helped increase the calamity. In other words, they went far beyond what God had intended. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be large. So this cannot refer, by the way, we'll learn more of this, just to that first initial rebuilding of the temple or the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And because God says, my cities, verse 17, will again overflow with good, And Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. 
Yahweh, the Lord, and ultimately Jesus Christ will return to Jerusalem one day. He will rebuild his temple. There will be a millennial temple. And then in the eternal state, God will cause the new Jerusalem that he has made in heaven to come down to earth. But notice that God will restore the cities of Israel and Judah. Amazing. Well, what are we to do with this? We should take note, first of all, to love what God loves. We should have a heart for Israel. We should pray for Israel in these days. We should not be like so many nations that abandoned Jews and Israel in the face of persecution. But most of all this morning, let us worship this angel of the Lord. This is none other than Christ, our Lord. And let's bless him as our warrior king, as our priestly king, and our prophet king, even as we come to his table now to commune with him. Let's pray. God, our hearts are stirred by some of the events we hear of coming across the news from Israel. And then our minds are blown away as we hear prophecies 2,500 years old that speak of your continuing love for Israel. We confess we do not presume to know how all the details of, of prophecy in your word work out, will work out. But we love your promises to Israel and Judah, and we believe what your scriptures say, that you're just the kind of God who can do whatever he wills according to your will. So this morning we are in awe of you and we tremble before the Lord Jesus Christ. We love, Lord Jesus, that you are standing ready at a moment's notice to come and to defend your people. That's so comforting to us this morning that you're like that, that you love your people, Israel, and that you love your church like that. You love your bride. We're moved by your heart for us, your people, that you intercede for us. And we love that from your mouth flows comforting words of hope. So may your people assembled here this morning in your name hear your voice, see you, through the clarity of your holy scriptures. And may we go from this place today, burdened, yes, for the things that are going on in the world, but most of all, rejoicing that you, Lord Jesus, are the Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen.